Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. This morning, we're continuing in our sermon series titled Evolving Christianity by reflecting on our dedication to wholeheartedly declare God's favor upon and presence within every person. But what if a person has theological questions or sincere doubts like Jaber? Or what if a person has a life that looks different from the life that the church says is okay to have? Do questions and lifestyles preclude a person from the divine favor and from the divine presence? For many, the answer to this question is yes. And this has been the experience of countless people throughout millennia who have not fit either in belief or lifestyle, the beliefs and lifestyle that has been prescribed by the church. Because many Christians today have been taught that divine favor and presence is earned. We earn it through correct belief and moral living. And yet, much of this thinking is the result of a movement that became an empire and over time took on empire characteristics such as believe or else. Anytime we hear that kind of language, we have fallen into the linguistics of empire. And this is nothing but tragedy because it completely misses not only the life and way of Jesus as we see it in the ancient days, but it also misses what we're learning from other disciplines such as science about ultimate reality existence itself. Here's what I mean. Beginning with Jesus' gospel in Luke chapter 4, we talk about this a lot. Jesus walked into a synagogue, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news. That word there, good news, is gospel. He's brought me to bring gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, briefly, I want to connect the introductory line of this reading to the final line, just to help ensure that we don't miss it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice here that Jesus' proclamation of the Lord's favor is declared without any kind of requirement or condition. It's merely and powerfully declared, bestowed upon everyone without any restraint. And what makes this declaration even more powerful is that scholars agree upon a context out of which this statement is declared. And we heard it in the Hebrew scriptures this morning, jubilee. And here's why that's important. Jubilee, as we see it in Leviticus chapter 25, was a declaration and a celebration that was to take place every 50 years in the life of Israel. And the people who benefited from Jubilee the most, like the most, were the poor, those who were in debt, those who were enslaved. In other words, the marginalized within Israel. Because during Jubilee, nobody worked, 
During Jubilee, food from previous crops was shared with everyone. During Jubilee, debts were canceled. During Jubilee, slaves were set free. That's how Jubilee was supposed to be. Jubilee, you could say, functioned as a societal reset in order to accord with the heart of God, which is favor upon everyone. Because you see, over time, societies tend to take on economic, religious, and societal hierarchies, right? During which marginalization grows. It just grows and grows and and grows. And it's during this growth of marginalization that those who are not marginalized, that is to say the majority, who begin to think they are blessed, they are worthy, they are chosen, they are favored. And because the majority has all the power, their systems, structures, and beliefs about who is blessed, who is worthy, who is chosen, who is favored becomes fixed, like fixed ways of seeing and being within a culture. So much so that the majority then is slowly fooled into thinking that they, they are the arbiters of divine favor. And with this context in mind, it was against, it was absolutely against this human proclivity that the spirit of Jubilee beckoned, repent, which is to say, return home to the very heart of God. Because God's heart is the proclamation of favor upon every person, especially those whose societies and religions alienate, estrange, and harm. Isn't that beautiful? It's so beautiful. And it's into this very beauty that the gospel of Jesus invites the proclamation of divine favor on everyone. Everyone. Beyond Jesus' connection to Jubilee is his Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes to be exact. In this section of Scripture from Matthew, a really intentional connection is being made between Moses when he gave the law to Israel and Jesus kind of reworking this law in the life of Israel. To understand this connection, we need to recall the book of Exodus. In Exodus, Israel has been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They travel through the wilderness and arrive at the foot of a mountain. The story tells us that Moses goes up onto the mountain And it's here on the mountain that he receives the law. And then he comes down and you can almost picture him sitting on the side of the mountain, bestowing this law upon Israel. Do these things and you will be blessed. Do these things and you will be cursed. And over time, a particular way of seeing and understanding the world develops. It's a way of seeing and understanding that gives shape to how many of us see and understand the world today which looks like this. If a person's life is good, if a person's life has ease, then then many of us believe somewhere deep inside of ourselves that that person must be doing it right. But if a person's life is bad, if there's difficulty, if there's a lack of ease, well, then many of us believe that that person must be doing something wrong. Entrenched in our moral assumptions, we begin to assume divine favor upon those who have it right, for those whose lives are good, and a lack of divine favor upon those who have it wrong, upon those whose lives are hard. Of course, it's from this way of seeing and understanding that leads to the idea that a person must do something, change something, believe something, become something in order to be blessed. And so when Matthew tells us that Jesus, like Moses, went up onto a mountainside, sat down, and was surrounded by his followers when he began to speak, he's making a really interesting attempt to recast Moses' law. And it sounds like this. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. How good is that? According to Jesus' Beatitudes, the blessed, another word that could be used here is favored, the favored are not just those whose lives are filled with good and ease. Rather, the favored, according to Jesus, includes those whose lives are filled with strain and difficulty. And here's why that's important. Favor, in the Greek, dektos, refers to something or someone who is acceptable, someone or something who is pleasing, someone or something who is worthy which is to say worth. And a person who we humans believe is worthy, that's a big deal when we believe like in our bones that a person has worth. It's that very person who then becomes inherently worth intentional care and unconditional belonging. At Pearl, we are dedicated to wholeheartedly declaring God's favor on every person. Every person is worth intentional care. Every person is worth unconditional belonging. And the more difficult a person's life is, the more different a person's life is. The more marginalized a person's life is. Well, according to the way of Jesus, they are the ones who are especially worthy of a kingdom called heaven that from the beginning was marked by divine favor. This is good, very good news. And this brings me to a fundamental difference in our understanding of God. For many ancient people, God or the gods were understood to be other. And by other, I mean different from we humans. And in most cases, out there, up there, right? Far, far away. Mainstream Christianity is certainly held to a perspective like this, which makes sense because it rose up out of Greek and dualistic thinking that delineated between materiality, the flesh, which was considered to be temporary and even foul, and then the immateriality, the soul, which was considered to be pure and good and eternal. And so, for many, the work of Christianity has become twofold. First, the work of Christianity is to get God, who is outside of us, inside of us, right? Like, that's goal number one. And then that leads to goal number two. The work of Christianity is to get humans away from here, the materiality of earth and of our bodies, and up there to the immateriality, the eternal good of God. But what if God, which is a theological container for ultimate reality itself, what if ultimate reality isn't outside of us? What if ultimate reality isn't up there, out there, far, far away? Many theologians today are beginning to realize that our thoughts on God are grounded in the foundations of modern science, 15th, 16th century which is to say our theology is shaped by thoughts on an ultimate reality, on a God that is orderly, rational, fixed, and other. And yet, today science is entering into an entirely new understanding of reality at the subatomic and quantum physics levels, which are revealing, among other things, that the whole, like all of this, is somehow comprised of interrelated little holes, 
at the molecular level. About this, the extraordinary Catholic nun and scientist Ilya Delio explains, in the quantum worldview, the universe is a vast unified sea of possibility with matter and energy as two facets of the same universal process. The discovery of relativity and the mysterious nature of matter and energy has led scientists to conclude that matter is not composed of basic building blocks, but rather comprises complicated webs of interrelationships at the molecular level. It's incredible. We're coming to realize that the universe existence, to use Christian vernacular, God, isn't up there or out there, but is somehow right here around us and within in us. There's so much that could be said here. It's interesting to note that the mystics have always held to a non-Western, non-foundations of modern science perspective on God. Uh, Richard Rohr, for example, talks about it well when he explains theology of atonement as at one meant. At one meant. By this he means that the work of atonement isn't trying to to get God in here or to try to get us up there by correct belief and moral living. Rather, the work of atonement is to wake, to rouse, for humans to rest into the intrinsic oneness of all things. He argues that's the work of Christian life. And while due to the consciousness of the Bible's authors, we primarily read about a God who is out there and up there, we do get glimpses of this at one of all things. For example, the creation story in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that God's word manifests the creation. God's word manifests the creation. About this, we often think that God's word was spoken from kind of a different place, maybe spoken in Hebrew, I guess we're assuming. God's word was spoken in Hebrew from out there, up there from a mouth, right? And then created all of this down here separate from God who is up there. But about this, we often, we often think uh, differently about stories and words, right? If stories exist, how do they exist? The ones that we read, at least. Not in separation from its words but in, very literally, within the words of a story. It's in the words that a story is made. And so it makes me wonder, is it possible that all of this, like is it possible that all of this exists not outside of or apart from, but in, very literally, within the divine word of creation? It's kind of an abstract thought, but it's an interesting idea. And how about this? In Genesis chapter 2, God takes dirt, sculpts it into Adam, which is the Hebrew word for man. God sculpts dirt into Adam, and then God breathes air. Uh, the word could be translated wind, spirit, into Adam, giving him life. Now, just for a moment, hold this image in your mind's eye of God breathing life into Adam's nose, filling his lungs with air. In the New Testament, the Greek word for inspired is theonoustos. Theonoustos is two Greek words, theos, God, noustos, uh, which is breathed. God breathed. How about that for our understanding of inspiration? Is it alive? Is it a living thing? Well, then it must be inspired, which is to say it must be filled with the very breath, wind, spirit of God. 
The Apostle Paul seems to tap into this idea when he's speaking to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, God who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though God needs anything, since God gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. For in God we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are God's offspring. On the last night of my nine-day road trip during my sabbatical, I found myself disintegrated. I found my disintegrated self sitting in Unity State Park, looking out over a lake as the sun set behind a forest. And I had this moment. I can't explain to you how moments like these happen, right? We've all had moments. How does that moment happen? It's a whole bunch of things, and all of a sudden you are in a moment. I was having a moment. You see, because of my religious and familial experiences, I had come to believe deep, deep in my bones that I was responsible for belonging. My thoughts, my beliefs, my actions are what make me acceptable to God. And although I had come to believe intellectually for quite a while that I, independent of myself, exist in my body, in my soul, in God, something in my life had yet to catch up to that idea. Sitting in my camping chair in unity, I beheld in a moment the infinite, imbibing a sunset awash in pink and purple, birds inspired to fly, a glassy lake mirroring, mirroring the creation. And in a moment, something quite substantial broke. Suddenly, in that moment, I felt as though I was no longer apart or at distance from the divine. It was in that moment, and it's hard to hold on to it, right? I slip back into these old ways of being and seeing, but moments like those can propel us forward to take a step, right? A step toward the kind of reality within which we know is true and good and calling us home. That woman in that moment had shook my sense of separation to pieces, and I felt myself sobbing into the very gateways of heaven itself. In 1984, Father Thomas Keating invited a broad range of spiritual teachers from virtually all of the world's great wisdom traditions, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, indigenous, Islamic, to gather at St. Benedict's Monastery in Snowmass, Colorado. This came to be called the Snowmass Conference. One key goal for the leaders' time at the Snowmass Conference was rather than argue about how they're different, thank goodness, is they spent time investigating various points of agreement for which they found eight. And I, I want to highlight just one, which addresses this morning's sermon on divine favor and presence. It reads, As long as the human condition is experienced as separate from ultimate reality, it is subject to ignorance and illusion, weakness and suffering. I'd like to read that again. As long as the human condition is expressed experienced as separate from ultimate reality, it is subject to ignorance and illusion, weakness and suffering. And to that, I would like to give an unreservedly amen. Amen. At Pearl, we are dedicated to wholeheartedly declaring God's favor upon and presence within every person. 
through every song, liturgy, sermon, class, and interaction, hoping with all of our heart that over time we would have these moments, these clicks, these shifts, these substantial experiences that allow us to take a step forward into a reality that is more true than we could ever hope or imagine. And truly, this is the very prayer and desire of Jesus who prays in John chapter 17, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one. Not by belief, not by moral management, but by at-one-ment. The realization of what is. In place of closing with prayer this morning, I'd like to invite you to join me in a mantra written by a Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh. And if you feel comfortable, I invite you to repeat after me. I have arrived. I am home. I am solid. I am free. In the ultimate, I dwell. In the ultimate, I dwell. In the ultimate, I dwell. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.